G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's 10 to 12, October the 15th, 1970. The time and date, the Westgate Bridge, being built to lead Melbourne traffic to and from Geelong, comes down, killing 35, seriously injuring 18, and leaving an indelible mark on Australia's industrial history. The 49th commemoration was held below the bridge on Tuesday. In today's program, Tom Watson gives a first-hand account of that dreadful day. But first, some union news. We are in the middle of Poverty Week, running from October the 13th to the 19th. It is being marked differently around the country. So, for example, the Hunter workers will hold a rally for the region's working poor in Civic Park, on Friday, October the 18th, speakers including workers, apprentices and Federal Newcastle MP Sharon Claydon. And they'll be talking about issues including unemployment, wage theft, domestic violence and equal pay. A report coming from the food charities has just come out to be part of this week, showing more hungry Australians seeking help. One in five Australians say they ran out of food at least once in the past year and were unable to buy more, according to the new report. According to the Food Bank survey of more than 2,000 charities who provide food relief, there has been a 22% increase in Australians seeking food to eat from charities nationwide in the past 12 months. In New South Wales and the ACT, there was a 23% increase. In Victoria, there was a 25% increase. Only 37% of charities surveyed said that they were meeting the full needs of the people they were helping. Food Charity Food Bank says the drought, rising costs of living and the low level of new start are among factors fueling the increase in people's seeking help. The charity is calling on the Morrison government to take urgent action to provide more assistance to hungry Australians. Food Bank Australia Chief Executive Brianna Casey said, We tend to be the canary in the coal mine. We know if a family is struggling behind closed doors, she said. It's a problem that is prolific and it's just not being spoken about. In another part of the country, a Senate committee hearing is continuing in Canberra into Newstart. And it's also been hearing about hungry Australians who gave evidence of skipping meals to make ends meet. Anglicare Australia said single parents in particular were skipping meals to try and give their children enough food. Older workers on Newstart now, such as Mr Ordu, a journalist, he has had two stints on the unemployment benefit for one year after his relationship broke down and the most recently for about three months last Christmas after the newspaper he edited folded. He is now working. His background meant nothing to the job agencies, he said, who were interested only in ticking boxes, describing the treatment of the unemployed as sadistic. He said 
he had to apply for 20 jobs a month and in a moment of what he said was totally catch-22 madness, he was forced to apply for 10 jobs in the fortnight before he started a new job this year despite already having a job and start date. He was paid $695 a fortnight including rent assistance which left him with $15 a fortnight after paying the rent in his pretty shabby one-bedroom apartment in Sydney's West. You're basically pushed over a cliff and that is how the system operates, to deter or destroy, but certainly not to help, he said. Brenton, 56, told the inquiry he has postgraduate qualifications in the sciences and worked in IT for 20 years. Now he is required to do 650 hours a year work for the Dole, which he said exceeded the maximum community service order a court could impose in New South Wales for an offence with a one-year jail term. The job agencies were like parole officers, he said. At the same inquiry, a Mental Health Australia spokesperson said, at best, the New Start payment is fundamentally inadequate to sustain reasonable and necessary cost of living for people with mental illness. At worst, the payment's inadequacies cause deterioration of mental illness through restricting access to nutrition and safe and stable housing, he said. The Parliamentary Committee heard the average length of time people received the payment was about three years or 159 weeks. A researcher from the Australian Institute gave evidence that in the early 90s, an unemployed family of four was over 10% above the Henderson poverty line. Since then, it has been indexed only and now it sits at 20% below the poverty line, he said. The Federal LNP Social Security Minister Anne Rustin is reported as saying raising New Start would be a gift to drug dealers. This catchphrase goes well with what The Australian reported on Monday in its Splash article, Welfare Reform to Save Billions. Shifting people from disability payments, increasing the pension age with a 45% surge in over 55s now on New Start since the Liberals took office, suppressing the New Start payment to below the poverty line, automation of social services, thus increasing unemployment, divesting their responsibilities to private service providers and robo-debt technology, is reported in the Australian as a success, with the welfare population reduced by 1.28%, family tax benefit A down by 11%, and B by 17%. Despite evidence that the private agency system, as one new start recipient said, as useless, controlling and punitive, cutting people off meagre money for meagre reasons, Ms Rustin maintains jobs growth and supporting job seekers had driven down the lifetime cost of welfare. The difference between how different classes see Poverty Week can be summed up by a recent report out of the US. Matt Bruning, founder of the left-wing think tank People's Policy Project, broke down the US Federal Reserve's newly released Distributive Financial Accounts Data Series and found that overall the top 1% owns nearly $30 trillion of assets while the bottom half owns less than nothing, meaning they have more debts than they have assets. The growth of wealth inequality over the past 30 years, Bruning found, is eye-popping. 
Between 1989 and 2018, the top 1% increased its total net worth by $21 trillion, Bruning wrote. The bottom 50% actually saw its net worth decrease by $900 billion over the same period. We are not America, but the same neoliberal policies of privatisation, draconian social welfare and lack of workers' rights legislation has increased our billionaire rate by 82 at the last count. Just to catch up with the uh, EBA negotiations for the Victorian Rail, Tram and Bus Union tram drivers, despite a projected stop work for tram drivers last Thursday, it was called off by the Victorian branch of the RBTU. They said, our decision has been made because of the unpredictable nature of the Extinction Rebellion protests in the CBD. We are concerned that there may be numerous drivers that become locked in due to protests. This would mean that these drivers will not be able to attend the mass meeting at Trades Hall and would not be paid while they are stuck on network. For this reason, and as a sign of good faith, we have notified Yarra Trams that the industrial action has been withdrawn. We have yet to receive a response from Yarra Trams about the offer we made last week. The rally in support of the RBTU train drivers and workers EBA negotiation position is still to be held on Thursday, October the 17th at 11.30am at Flinders Street Station Steps. Supporters, welcome. The New South Wales government has rejected the case for introducing industrial manslaughter laws that are underway in other states, with the responsible minister arguing that the laws were, averted commas, little more than a catchy title. It follows an independent review of national workplace safety laws earlier in the year, which recommended a uniform offence of industrial manslaughter to make employers liable for gross negligence of their workers. Massive protests have brought Ecuador almost to a standstill. Most of the country is paralysed by a coalition of social organisations, including the indigenous movement under Kone, many student organisations, the Unitary Front of Workers, or FUT, and many citizens in general, especially farmers and workers. The protests erupted after President Lenin Moreno declared a host of economic and social austerity measures proposed by the International Monetary Fund as a condition for loans. These included eliminating subsidies, raising gas and food prices and restructuring work laws based on more neoliberal standards, among other things. By the second week of massive protests, thousands of indigenous protesters paralysed towns and roads. Thousands more arrived in the capital after walking, in many cases, hundreds of miles from their rural homes all the way to Quito. Andre Tapico, Communications Director, Confernade. We are all striking against a massive increase in food and transport prices, also the government's agreement with the IMF. These agreements with oil, mining and timber corporations represent a great danger for our indigenous lands. In America, the United Auto Workers are into their fourth week on strike in their dispute with General Motors. 
at issue. One, how long it takes in-progression workers, the second tier, to move up to their top level. It currently takes eight years to move from $17 an hour to $28 an hour, and their ceiling still has a lower wage and benefit package than those who were hired before 2007. Two, what to do about the temps who are paid $15 to $19 an hour for the same work and often work as temps for years. And three, how to have apprenticeships for skilled trades when GM has lumped many trades together under one generic classification. This is one of the strike songs that has come from the workers on strike. Home of the original sit-down strikers. It's now our time to make the move. Better believe we have some grievances that need some answering. Our Spriggy. We at the burn bear. 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 Need a new contract. Need a new contract. Better be what we ask. You say no. You say no, then the picket line is where we at. We at the burn bear. 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 Need a new contract. Need a new contract. Better be what we ask. You say no. You say no, then the picket line is where we at. Day in and day out. Day in and day out. Up to nine hours a damn day. Still my weekends. Still my weekends. Damn to every Saturday. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News, Social Justice Issues. Tuesday the 15th of October was the 49th anniversary of the worst industrial accident in Australia's history, the collapse of the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne. Talking to a survivor, Tom Watson, is a sobering experience with plenty of lessons for today in this increasingly anti-union government legislation climate. Well, a few a few weeks before... Um we had somebody who uh, was working on the job from Wales and they come and told us that a bridge collapsed in Wales, Milford Haven. And when you go back, you know, all those all those years, there was no uh, mobile phones, no internet, no computers. Anyway, after a few days of, of ringing up and talking to people, we found out it was a box girder bridge, the same as a Westgate. It was the same uh, design engineers, Freeman Fox, who designed it. Four people got killed. And it got to the stage one morning, uh, 500, 500 people just refused to go to work. And we sat on the job till the union officials come and we got addressed by management. A, a bloke called Jack Hindshaw, who was the engineer who designed the bridge, told us he was the best bridge builder in the whole world. And the job was safe and we should go back to work. And as far as he, he was concerned, it was safe. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. And when, when the management left, because we were just sitting there with a couple of union officials who were really just rank-and-file people as we were, they'd been on the job a few years before, all I can tell you is what I did. I voted to go back to work because he's, he was on the job every day. He was on the coalface. And my argument was, and my attitude was, well, if he thought it was safe, he's there every day, then it's safe for me. But he went down with a ship and took 34 other people with him and we made a mistake going back to work. Yes, it was a Thursday, 10 to 12, just on payday. Uh, you know, 10 to 12, people were, some people were sitting on the toilet, some people in the lunchroom washing their hands, some people were getting ready to have their lunch. And when it come down, I mean, there was about, I don't know, about 15 people in the sheds that couldn't get out, just just, just got crushed when the, when the bridge come down. They couldn't get out of the sheds. Oh, that's horrible. 
Oh, it was terrible. It was just it was it was chaos. And and what happened was when the bridge actually collapsed, um, no fire brigade, ambulance, or coppers probably turned up for about twenty minutes. I think it was, and yeah. it was just workers on the job that were doing all the all the all the work. Well, if you've ever seen the Westgate Bridge, there's a road right beside it. And there were school buses going past and waving to us and because they didn't know what was going on. There was traffic. And when the fire brigade arrived, they weren't trained as they are today. And they couldn't use the settling. They couldn't cut up the steel. They couldn't. They just didn't have the equipment. So us as workers end up doing all the work. And it wasn't their fault. They just weren't trained to, to do that sort of work in them days. Disaster should never have happened. It was just, just ridiculous. I, I think they built the pyramids in a better way, and they built the West Coast in them days. But when we went back eighteen months later, um, then then the health and safety laws started to come in. Then we then we then we had a bit of argument against the employers because we could bring in engineers and we could had our own argument. But when you've got engineers saying they're the best in the world, and you know you just got rank and file people who who follow and listen to what people tell you, and, and when they make a mistake, they, they impact on everybody else. Can, can you tell go back to that day and tell us what actually happened after it was down? What what you must have been in shock. Well, I, I was on the water's edge. We were transporting steel across from the Port Melbourne side. That's where all the steel was fabricated. Well, you, well, you, have you ever been in a car accident? It, it, yeah, it's I have. Quick, but it's slow. Yeah, it is. It's weird. So I seen the bridge come down. I heard the crack. I seen people falling off it. There was smoke and there was flames, and everything was so slow. But it was a matter of seconds from the time that we heard the crack to the time it hit the bottom was probably a couple of seconds. And then when we got there, I mean, there was, you know, I was twenty three year old, and there was people younger than me. And, and the first thing you look for is trying to save people. And, and the first couple of people you come across are, are bodies with arms and legs missing. And they're your workmates and your friends and your unionists. And all you do is looking for people who are still alive, trying to save them. And at the same time, the emotions go. It, it, it's hard to explain. It's just, it's a terrible feeling, you know. Well, what happened is it, it came down on the, on the Thursday. Uh, we worked Thursday till pretty late, Friday, Saturday. We went in for a couple of hours on the Sunday. Then they told us to have Monday off, so we all had Monday off. So we go in Tuesday morning. Don't forget the bridge collapse on the Thursday. This is Tuesday. We go on the job, and the job was locked. The gates, we couldn't get in. They herded us like cattle into a car park, and we all got sacked. 540 people got sacked on the spot. And then on the Thursday, there was nine funerals. On the Friday, there was five funerals. So we're trying to go to as many funerals as we can. No cancelling, no support, all being dismissed. You know, it was just a horrible, horrible thing. It would never happen today. I mean, nobody knocked on my door. Nobody knocked on anybody else's door, seeing if they could help us. The only support that we had was from the trade union movement. It hadn't been for the unions, we would have had no support whatsoever. Yeah, the shameful treatment from the company at the time to sack the sack the blokes after they lost thirty-five of their comrades, and and, and spend days digging, you know, trying to get the bodies out and go and visit people. And then, that, then when, when we all got sacked, they told us, oh, don't worry, you've done a great job, you know. Uh, when the bridge reopens, uh, we'll call you back. 18 months later, we go back on the job and they refuse to start our shop stewards. And no argument about victimisation or anything like them days. They just said, no, we're not starting them. So we went on, on strike for nearly six weeks to get our shop stewards on the job. And uh, there were several uh, workers who became uh, prominent union officials and uh, health and safety advocates. Off the West oh, Bridge. yeah, well, John, John Cummings worked on the bridge. I mean, I worked there. I was a union official for 33 years. 
Pat Preston, I can name dozens of people, you know. You, you, you know, if, if you're in a disaster like that and it doesn't change your attitude or your feeling on safety or health and safety or towards employers, what, what needs to happen in your life to change your attitude? It's the worst construction disaster in this country. That There's been bigger disasters, but they were in mines about two or 300 years ago. It's the biggest construction disaster. And I, I hope in another 20 or 30 years' time, people are still talking about the Westgate Bridge, but that means there's never been another one. But hate people to go through what we went through on that day in a way we were treated, you know, with no respect, no no counselling, no support for years. It was just terrible. Well, as Aileen wrote it down, and uh, and, and they survived, and, and some of them, well, they had that many injuries, they're terrible, you know. And, and we brought four or five of them back on the job when we went back to clean the sheds and all that. And we had to argue with the company over that. They didn't even want them to come back because they thought it might have been a safety risk. And there's a plaque there. I don't know if you've ever seen the plaque. There's a plaque that we go to every year. Uh, we, we nearly had to go on strike to put that plaque in. They didn't want to put it up because they told us it was going to be a toll bridge. And they didn't want the plaque reminding people of the disaster. And they wouldn't go over the bridge and use the toll. So we had to threaten to go on strike even to put that up. Every worker put in a day's, wa- a day's wages. Yeah, everybody on the job put in a day's wages for that plaque. The employers in the company. Uh, late, later on, when the tide was starting to turn against them, you know, public opinion that they wanted to put money and we told them what to do with it we just we did under all ourselves well there was two kinds of injuries that there was the mental in, in, injury that nobody cared about and t- let me tell you a lot of people turned to alcohol and and, and drugs wasn't as bad as today and all and family breakdowns and then there was the physical injuries and some people had terrible f- physical injuries because when the bridge collapsed you could only claim one injury at a time so if you had two broken arms and two broken legs you can only claim one oh. And the, and, the, and the government actually changed the law because the, when the Westgate Bridge collapsed because it was absolute disaster. I mean, people with, you know, most bones in their body broken, got to pick the worst bone and get one claim. So that was all changed as a result of the Westgate. That's just breathtaking. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 you, you know, you, pe- people, when you tell people the story, they don't believe you, but you've got to go back in time, and that's how it was. I mean, there wasn't one job that, that stopped and come down and helped us. There wasn't one job that put a collection to give us money while we're out of work for 18 months. If that happened today, there'd be hundreds and thousands of workers at, at the Westgate trying to help, trying to dig the bodies out, trying to get people money, people support. Society's changed for the better. The unions have changed for the better what it was in them days. Everybody's a bit isolated in them days. We didn't have the communications like 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 we had in them days. I mean, when when we when we rang Milford Haven to try and get somebody over there um, to find out about it, you, you had to book a a phone call overseas. You had to book it three days in advance, and after three minutes, you got cut off. It's interesting so, too because you guys were the ones who did the investigation, so you were all smart enough to know that there was a problem afoot. Well, well, the company Freeman and Fox and, and John Holland didn't want us to know about the, the one in uh, Milford Haven. It was only because somebody on the job, cousin or next door neighbour's friend or something, knew somebody had got killed on the job. Oh my God! And, 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 and the company, if we didn't know about that, they would never have told us. And it was exactly the same company Freeman and Fox, Fox Girder Bridge. And then they wouldn't even have informed us. It was a disgrace, absolute disgrace. You, you know, they design all these things and, you know, on a bit of paper and on a drawing, and when you go to put it up, it just doesn't come together, you know. It was just... I mean, the, the, the steel was all buckled, and it shouldn't have been buckling it. They take bolts out to try and straighten the steel and take too many bolts out, and bridge comes down, 35 people dead, and 18 in hospital, you know.
But, you know, it's also the arrogance of the class that does the organising and the financing, refusing to actually talk to the people who put it together. When we had the meeting, and, and as Jack Hinshaw addressed the meeting, he, 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 was, he, he was so arrogant because we were questioning his, his, his ability and his authority to design and build bridges. And he was looking down his nose at us. First time we'd ever met him. And he was so arrogant. He, he was just, he'd drive you up the wall, you know, today. Like a real sergeant major in the army and things like that. You've got no right to ask or question. You just do as you're told and just go on the job. That was his attitude. Yeah, he went down. Yeah, he got killed. But he took 30 He got killed. <laughs> yeah, he got killed. Yeah, he got killed. No, he got killed. Because as I said, he, he was always at the work face. He was always on the job. But yeah, no, he got killed. He, 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 his body was pretty well cut up, but... But look about, what about all the innocent people? Yeah, he wasn't yeah. innocent. The other people were, you know. Yeah. We were innocent people. He wasn't. Yeah. And there's 34 families and 34 grandkids and they've never seen their grandchildren and you can keep on going, you know. just absolutely. And, and then there's there us, the four or five hundred, who just got sacked and got put on a scrap heap for 18 months and then get a telegram to come back to work and, and they tell us we're not starting your shop, stewards, you know. You, you know, this is a really uh, important lesson uh, for a whole lot of reasons, but one of them in particular is this uh, outrageous uh, legislation being put in Parliament at the moment that's basically anti-union legislation, you know, this idea that unions are irrelevant. Well, if that legislation was in 1970, you see, you know, I'm telling you how we were treated. Yeah. Imagine, if, imagine if it was in what would be treated like now if that was in. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's even worse, even worse than it was in 1970. Yeah, people should really worry about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just disgraceful, you know. I mean, you know, when we went on strike for our shop stewards, we'd probably get fined today. Yeah, that's right. And threat and threaten a jail and everything. And, and they didn't say our shop stewards, and they, and, you know, and they killed 35 people. We, we, we would have been... The, we would have been in court, but because you're questioning, see, you're questioning their authority and their attitude, and they 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 know what's right. You know what I mean? And, and, and you're, you know, you're a servant, and they're the sir. You know, they're going back, you know, hundred years ago. It really hasn't changed in some places. That's it for Stick Together today. We sincerely thank Tom Watson for speaking to us today. Stick Together is made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and also on iTunes. You can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are or whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next week, stick together. Here is Mark Seymour's song, Marking the Westgate Disaster.
something about rust and a difference in camber and buckles in the western span. We went back on the job that day when they swore blue murder she would never come down. I got away with six broken ribs. I'm the luckiest man around. And a